we've gotten to the point somehow where everybody thought that higher education was all grown up, that it was all mature, there'd be nothing new, that the, the status of status was to become Harvard or Berkeley or Michigan, uh, that everyone would just strive to be that and that there wasn't any need for leaders, you just needed to let the system work. And so leadership in higher education is not financial leadership or business leadership per se, you certainly have to have people that understand those kinds of things, but intellectual and design leadership. And so I am of the view that colleges within universities and universities themselves should have intellectual leadership, design scale intellectual leadership so that each university and each college within a university and each smaller college that isn't a part of the university are evolving and adapting intellectually rather than just simply replicating or rather than just simply following others. And so it's a different kind of leadership. everyone, and welcome to this episode of An Ingenious You. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Michael Crow. As president of Arizona State University, he has led a remarkable institutional transformation, which has resulted in ASU's ranking by U.S. News & World Report as the number one innovative university in our nation for seven straight years. Michael is joined by Dr. William DeBars, who serves as a senior research fellow for university design and senior director of research for the new American University in the office of the president at ASU. Will is Michael's co-author for two recent books, one of which we will be discussing shortly. The bios will be included in this episode's show notes. Michael and Will, welcome to the Ingenious You community. Nice to see you, Melissa. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. So I want to dive right in and ask you about your latest book, The Fifth Wave, The Evolution of American Higher Ed, which is a sequel to your earlier book, Designing the New American University. A central premise of the fifth wave is the notion that America's future depends on embracing the idea that excellence and access in higher education are not incompatible, but synergistic. Can you tell us something about the backstory for this thinking? And for those who've not yet read the book, what is the fifth wave model? So I'll talk a little bit about the backstory from, a, from an institutional design and national design perspective. And then maybe Will can talk about the uh, historical context and, and what the fifth wave is. And so, so uh, you have to imagine that we, we inherited a British and German educational model in the United States uh, for the European immigrants that, that uh, came over, which meant we inherited a system of education which was built on uh, elitism for the most part uh, and ultimately on uh, exclusion. That is that we would try to be utilitarian and educate uh, to the best that we could most efficiently as possible, a few people, as opposed to educating large numbers of people at higher levels. Now, we, we became less utilitarian and more egalitarian in K-12 over time in the United States, but not in higher education. Higher education is different. And so uh, uh, both Will and I are of the view that evolution is a continuous force, that it affects all things, including universities and higher education. And so, and so you know, basically we set out, uh, I set out 20 years ago when I was appointed to this position to start thinking about a new design. Uh, and the new design was, could you build a highly accessible, scalable research university that could have deep impact on the success of the, of the country, on the success of the region where the, where the institution happened to be located? And could you do it in a way where it could scale 
to the scale of the democracy. And so basically the, and Will can comment on this, I mean, we're evolving a new design, implementing this new design as the next wave of higher education evolution in the United States, because the previous waves, all of which are still functional as institutional types, uh, uh, doesn't scale, uh, isn't quick, doesn't adapt, uh, isn't as egalitarian as it should be, and is not yet evolved, has not yet evolved to be the thing that we need for the country to be the most successful. Will, Will what do you want to add to that? Well, um, exactly. And uh, you mentioned the German and, and British academic models. So we saw that beginning with Harvard and the uh, 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 colonial colleges, the eight or nine colonial colleges, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, the schools that would become uh, brown. Um, they um, were basically English. Um, they were modeled on Oxford and Cambridge colleges. They um, were elitist then and, and, and remained uh, on a scale that we, in the book, likened to Plato's Academy, that uh, President Crow likened to Plato's Academy. And um, then the second wave were the uh, state universities and regional colleges that evolved in the early part of the 19th century. The third wave are the uh, land grant colleges and universities that came about as a result of the Morrill Act. And the fourth wave is the American Research University, which evolved beginning in 1870. I mean, we can date it to 1870, uh, somewhat arbitrarily perhaps, but with the founding of Johns Hopkins University, which uh, took specialized uh, scientific study, its German model, and grafted it onto the uh, English model. And this became the prototype for the American Research University. All of the schools, I mean, many of the schools from the first, second, and third wave evolved into major research universities, but some of them, some of the schools remain in, in their respective waves and are thriving, and we have a very com uh, a complex ecosystem in American higher education. I, I think the only thing I would add to that, uh, Will, is uh, the United States is unlike any other place. It's a, it's a polyglot of culture, it's cultures, it's a polycultural country, it's an open country, uh, it's a, a, you know, an unbelievable democratic experiment, which is, you know, going through its, its throes, if you will, uh, at the moment, uh, and uh, uh, the fifth wave is really uh, our idea of how one builds major research universities for a country that will be 400, 500 million people without necessarily having to build thousands of additional universities. You know, how do you scale? How do you diversify? How do you innovate? How do you adapt? Uh, how do you change everything? So here's a tidbit, just a little story. So as we've implemented our new model, uh, 10 years ago, we had 6,000 students in engineering. This semester, we have 27,000 students in engineering, 18,000 on campus, 9,000 online in the most advanced Star Trek Vulcan science camp, Vulcan technology camp from Star Trek that you can possibly imagine all in place because our model, the fifth wave, makes scale and innovation a functional element of how the university operates, which is not the case in the first wave or the, or the fourth wave. So in the book's introduction, you write that the envisioned formation of a league of fifth wave institutions builds most proximately on the foundation of the new American university model that you've operationalized at Arizona State University. So can you speak to how those two models are interrelated? 
Well, I mean, the New American University is a is is it, it means what it says, New American and University, but it's also a play on words. What we really mean is what kind of university would the fully realized America build? So America, when it was founded, was, you know, oppressed indigenous peoples, slaves and rich white people uh, forming a democracy that uh, at least got started. Well, now we got it started and now it has morphed into this unbelievably diverse thing. Well, how could the colleges that were present at that time be the, 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 the bulwark, uh, if you will, of what's needed going forward? So the idea of the new American university was, the new America was this polycultural, very diverse, scaled, high-speed, high-dynamic thing. And what kind of universities would that America have? They would have universities that were deeply accessible, uh, scalable, built around global scale excellence, competing as well as any university in the world, and they would be focused on the success of the democracy, both, both politically, culturally, socially, economically, all of those things. So the design of the idea of the new American university was to basically say that universities were not places where you sent a few people to be educated. They were places in which the institution became transformational to the to the society itself, uh, uh, broader than just who they educated. And so it goes all the way back to the idea of the national university that was talked about by George Washington in 1790, was talked about when John Smithson's gift created the Smithsonian Institution. The thing they almost created was a national service university called the Smithsonian University, but they decided not to. And so now, uh, you know, where, where Will and I have taken this is the new American university model is what kinds of additional universities, not in lieu of what we have, we're not, we're not against anything that we have, it's just that what we have is inadequate or insufficient. What is the new kind of university that now is representative of the, of the truly egalitarian society that America has made much progress towards developing? Right. For those, so uh, Will, go ahead. Oh, well, I, I, was, I, was, I was going to say the, the, the fifth wave then builds on it, it extends, it complements and augments the fourth wave, because um, the fourth wave, of course, the, these institutions are um, uh, transformationally successful. Uh, they, 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 these are the, re the research universities. Right? Research universities lead, 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 lead 17 out of the 20 top research universities in the world are, are, are American, but um, the um, access to the to the top leading colleges and universities has become so limited that the uh, rank and file of perfectly academically qualified uh, students were not being admitted. So uh, President Crow chose to uh, retain the admission standards that the University of California Berkeley maintained in the 1950s when someone who did well in a series of 10 courses in high school would automatically know that they could be admitted to the state's leading university. And at the time, it, it, it cost nothing also to go to the University of California. So that model, you know, we're trying to restore that model at the scale and diversity of the society. And we, we liken the model to, I mean, President Crow likens the model to combining the accessibility of the Cal State system with the research excellence of the University of California system. And so, but it's on, a, it's on a scale in Arizona that has far greater impact even than um, Cal State and UC have in California. 
Well, that, that's a great segue to my next question, because one of the things that my students often are interested in is how, how did you actually do this? And in your book, uh, chapter two provides a wonderful nuts and bolts kind of, of case study um, that really walks you through the reconceptualization of ASU that's been underway since I believe 2003. Yeah. Um, so yeah. can you, can, is that, it is 2003, right? Yeah. So, so can you unpack the case study for us? And from your vantage point, I'm really interested in knowing what you believe to be the most important strategies that you've undertaken, as well as what the outcomes have been that you can attribute to the new model. Yeah, I, I, these are in no particular order because they're all essential. So the first is to make certain that the, that the public university has something other than a generic purpose. That is the same purpose as every other public university. So we, you know, we're not public university 62. You know, uh, you know, we need to be the public university for the people of Arizona and all things Arizona. And so, and so, and then that then plays into the country. So we created a set of design aspirations. That is, the institution was working toward a set of things. Uh, 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 being entrepreneurial is one of those things. Uh, fusing intellectual disciplines is one of those things. So, so empowerment of the university's unique identity is essential. Empowerment of things that the university is attempting to be other than chasing other universities' reputation. And so if the sole purpose of the university is an, an alleged fake football game where you're playing football against the intellectuals at the other universities and we'll see who wins in that game, well, that's, that's you know, somewhat pointless. It doesn't mean there isn't scientific competition. There is, but that shouldn't be the purpose of the institution. The second thing that I think we spent a lot of time focusing on was defeating the, the bureaucratic model under which most universities operate and attempting to build a design management model. You empower the faculty to design their intellectual futures, not to operate as petty bureaucrats inside bureaucratic systems. Uh, uh, the other thing that we worked is to defeat the notion of the public university as an agency of the government, uh, but as an enterprise of the people. And that might sound like a subtle word difference. It isn't. And so if you operate like an agency, you only move with, with political control. You only move in bureaucratic ways. You are highly constrained in your entrepreneurism. And, and, and so forth. So we blew that up and have been able to evolve the university to be uh, more of what we call a public enterprise in the true spirit of the literature of public enterprise. Uh, you, you acquire resources in different ways. You have uh, degrees of flexibility that public bureaucracies or public agencies don't have. I think uh, central to this has been the empowerment of the faculty. Uh, you have to move the faculty away from being what in the organizational theory literature are uh, petty bureaucrats. Uh, you know, arguing over really small-minded things and arguing for resources and acting in, in the way Anthony Downs in Inside Bureaucracy 60 years ago would have called a uh, conserver modality. You've got to empower faculty to be designers and zealots, which we've been able to do. You have to free the university's uh, 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 clock speed uh, from only operating in academic time. In academic time, Plato lived yesterday. In, in, in real time, you know, uh, uh, global climate change, I'll use that as an example, global climate change is coming at us like a freight train. Mm -hmm. And I used to say when I was at Columbia University that it would take us longer to create a new intellectual department to take on the aspects of global climate change than it will for the Ross ice shelf to break off Antarctica uh, and uh, change sea levels. Meaning we, we move at glacial speeds. We move, we move, we move 
we, we were just too slow. So we worked on clock speed also. And I think the other thing is, um, at least in our case, embrace technology. Uh, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of technology partnerships that help us to operate the university more efficiently, more effectively, and on a better cost basis. We have hundreds of learning technology partners that help us to help a kid who's completely capable to go to a, a college but may not have mastered calculus when they were 16. Uh, but they need to master calculus to be an engineering major. Well, let's give them a tool that helps them to master calculus. It's not quite like the matrix where you just, you know, you, you, you know, you load the software and you can fly the helicopter, but almost. And so what I mean by that is that we've built every single tool imaginable with our faculty to enhance the learning process and the adaption process and the adaptability process. So, so those are the things, uh, Melissa, that we've worked on. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a free fall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Baypath University Doctorate in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input and then designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. All coursework is online and students receive an abundance of personalized support from peers and from our expert faculty. And through the dissertation and practice, you will learn how to plan and implement a change process to address a real organizational problem. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step by visiting our website at baypath.edu edd. I'd like to kick off this second half of the episode by circling back to your discussion about the most essential strategies you have pursued and ask you about outcomes. Are there some metrics that you can share that might illustrate results? Thinking uh, the results that you believe are directly attributable to the strategies that you've pursued. We used to have 40,000 total degree-seeking students at ASU, and now we have 150,000 degree-seeking yeah. students, and our faculty is about the same size. Mm -hmm. Our graduation rate has been more than doubled. Our uh, research activities have increased 5x. Mm. Uh, we're now chasing, we're just behind, a little bit behind MIT now in terms of our total research volume for a university without a medical school. We're in the top 10 of those schools. And so we've, out of the same faculty, we're producing five times the graduates doing five times the level of research, have 10 to 15 times the diversity of our student body, uh, have changed everything. We, we, you know, we've gone from just in STEM, for instance, from 15,000 STEM majors to 60,000 STEM majors, uh, all within the same structure. So these innovations, these tools, these mechanisms, these devices, we have more humanities majors than we've ever had. Uh, we have more. I, I was just in. A, I just taught my class. Uh, I teach every other semester. There was a kid in there that was a quadruple major, 
and another kid that was a triple major. And what we're finding is that almost everyone's a double major now. Many, many students are triple majors. Quadruple majors are possible. Four undergraduate majors in three years and a master's degree in a fourth year is now not uncommon because of the tools that we've put down to enhance educational outcomes all going on in a research environment. So we're very excited about all of that. What do you teach, by the way? I teach a course in science and technology policy and design. How do you design knowledge enterprises to produce social outcomes, economic outcomes, cultural outcomes, military outcomes, competitiveness outcomes, those kinds of things. Oh, those lucky, lucky students. <laughs> I don't know if they, how lucky they feel after today's talk, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, and, and relay, I, I think that leads to, you know, as you said, one of the pillars um, of your redesign has involved fusing, thinking about the disciplines differently and uh, fusing academic disciplines. And that seems to fly in the face of some of the higher ed observers out there who have been calling for a more narrow and specialized approach to designing the curriculum. So can you say a little bit about why you believe transdisciplinary thinking and reorganization is so important? Let's look at our failures in this pandemic that we're in the middle of. We don't know how to communicate science. We don't have sufficient science literacy in our population for people to understand you know, where we are. People are easily confused or, or uh, moved off target. Uh, people are being told hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of things. And the public health officials barely know how to communicate this stuff. I mean, it's a, it's, I don't want to call it a, a disaster, but it's, it's, it's a disaster. And so, and so what I mean by that is that um, if we had more transdisciplinary thinking, if we weren't narrowing things, the more we narrow, the less we're going to be able to actually embrace or deal with, with complexity. Uh, so, so we've done away with uh, 85 academic schools, departments, or colleges. We've built dozens and dozens of new transdisciplinary schools. Most of the people laughed about them until we got them going. They said no one would be hired. Everybody's hired. School of Sustainability, School of Earth and Space Exploration, School for Social Transformation, School for Transborder Studies, School for Art, Media, and Engineering, School for Complexity Management, School for the Future of Innovation and Society. Those are all new intellectual agendas that we have at the institution, all drawing in faculty. You know, Will's dissertation partly looked at, at uh, really complicated subjects about university design. What, what do you want to say about that? Well, uh, I did. I, I focused on, on interdisciplinarity, but um, which, which really is, is an old concept. I mean, it was, it was the way knowledge was, uh, the way science was done before the specialization into disciplines occurred in the, in the 19th century in the German university. But um, it's, um, it's been uh, vastly important in things like the Manhattan Project are mm -hmm. multidisciplinary. President Crow emphasizes transdisciplinarity too. And the distinction we make, if, if there's any to be made there, is, is that it's, uh, it's it means it means engagement with academic with other academic institutions with with uh, business and industry with government laboratories um my, michael i wondered if you wanted to say anything about the global futures laboratory thank you well the biggest project that we have is uh, our construction of the global futures laboratory which is an attempt to build an academic enterprise which now has 700 faculty members involved it has a college inside it the college of global futures there's three schools inside that college the School of Sustainability, the School for the Future of Innovation Society and the Future and the School of Complexity. Uh, and um, what we're trying to do there is to overcome one of, one of our most significant intellectual design failings, which is that 
We can't understand how to manage our relationship as a species with the planet on which we're dependent. And so, and because we siloed everything, we siloed chemistry, we siloed physics, we siloed biology, we siloed oceanography. Uh, we didn't think it through. We had people building things, uh, you know, fossil fuel based energy systems that then, you know, wreck the atmosphere that then do this and this and this. And so you'd think that we would have figured this all out, but we didn't. And so uh, I'm not saying we have the solution, but we do think that, you know, our job at the university is to figure out how to produce the right kind of knowledge and the right kind of thinking. So the, the biggest project that we've undertaken is the building of this global futures laboratory. We're opening a, opening a uh, fabulous uh, uh, new headquarters for that laboratory this semester. Uh, there's uh, labs in there focusing on monitoring the health of coral reefs with special aircraft that have been designed. There's labs in there that are focused on carboning, carbon capture. There's labs in there that are focused on uh, indigenous technologies, mm. indigenous science, uh, uh, you know, everything that you can imagine. How do you bring it all together? Not how do you specialize and take it apart? How do you bring it all together? That's really what we're focused on. Mm, boy, that's very exciting and, and compelling. So let me, I have, we're almost out of time. I have just a couple of questions I wanna uh, ask you in closing. You talked about the academic enterprise model and that being another one of the pillars of the, the redesigned work that you've done. I'd, I'd be interested in your take on the role of the leader in the academic enterprise model. And in particular, the role of the leader in creating and sustaining a culture that is fostering perpetual innovation, which strikes me as what you are doing at ASU. Yeah, so if you, if you look back in history at the evolution of American higher education, there are, uh, there are roles for leaders. We live in a moment in higher education where the notion of a leader is, is anachronistic to the model in the minds of many people. How could there possibly be a leader? Leader doesn't mean the same thing as it does in a corporation. It doesn't mean the same thing it does in the military. But there have been intellectual leaders. Charles Eliot was a president at Harvard for 40 years and came up with the whole notion of, of uh, expanding the curriculum, uh, the, the whole notion of rethinking what a student learns. Nicholas Murray Butler was president at uh, Columbia University for 40 plus years, who helped evolve the research university that grew out of Columbia College. The people that designed the University of California, the people that designed Columbia University out of Columbia College. I won't walk you through who all these people are, but, but we've gotten to the point somehow where everybody thought that higher education was all grown up, that it was all mature, there'd be nothing new, that the, the status of status was to become Harvard or Berkeley or Michigan, uh, that everyone would just strive to be that, and that there wasn't any need for leaders, you just needed to let the system work. And so leadership in higher education is not financial leadership or business leadership per se. You certainly have to have people that understand those kinds of things, but intellectual and design leadership. And so I am of the view that colleges within universities and universities themselves should have intellectual leadership, design scale intellectual leadership so that each university and each college within a university and each smaller college that isn't a part of the university are evolving and adapting intellectually rather than just simply replicating, or rather than just simply following others. And so it's a different kind of leadership. You would expect that the leader of a university or a college would be an intellectual architect, an intellectual designer, uh, hiring people to run things, and then focusing on where we need to be as a society. And so I think there's room, there's been leadership in the past, so, so people need to take a look at that. 
There's, there's been leadership at times of national crisis and national need, like during World War II and, and so forth and so on. Uh, and and there's, there's need for leadership now uh, in, in, in the need to evolve new kinds of colleges, new kinds of universities. So the role of the leader, however, is not, is not classic. I, I, I think of it as an intellectual leader, uh, which is a, a different type of role. So what's on your radar right now that you are particularly excited about? Is there a new project idea or innovation? Well, that well this is... will sound funny. So, so uh, you know, we're not obsessed with STEM by any means, but we are obsessed with the fact that everybody's afraid of science, technology, engineering, and math. And so we have spent massive amounts of money and time and energy uh, to uh, do everything that we can to build tools that overcome that barrier that many people face when they need to become science literate for their English degree or science literate for their philosophy degree. And so the most exciting thing that we have is that we think we found some of the secret codes that uh, using uh, uh, virtual reality technology, using adaptive technology, using advanced uh, computational uh, tutoring capabilities, we think that we can now say that no more barriers to STEM for anyone. Uh, and, and that's probably pedagogically the most exciting thing that we've been able to achieve. And that has been tremendously accelerated since the pandemic uh, began. And so, you know, we're hard at it. Will sitting in his office, I'm in my office, our university, we're like fully open moving forward, everything's going on. But more important than that, we've got, we've got research groups building new ways of teaching and learning here that are unbelievable. And these new ways of teaching and learning, they're going to break down these barriers that keep, keep us from making progress in a lot of dimensions. And so that's, that's, I think, the most exciting thing that we've got going on right now. And that is a great word to close on. And what a positive way to begin 2022. So thank you to you both. Very much appreciate your time and uh, am inspired by the thinking and the good work that you're doing there. Well, thank you, Melissa. Nice to see you. Yes, thank you so much. I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of Chellup, the Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education webinar series. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.